comic books are back in the headlines. That's a statement that could have been written this very week in August 2021. Turns out it was a teacher back in October of 1955 who made that observation in an article in the Elementary School Journal. Dwight Burton went on to explain much of the current public furor about comics is traceable to a book by Frederick Wortham, a New York psychiatrist who contends comic books promote, among other undesirable outcomes, illiteracy, unwholesome states of mind, and delinquent behavior. Meanwhile, Robert Cord, a teacher of teachers at a state teacher's college in North Dakota, wrote in the Peabody Journal of Education, also in 1955, wanting to learn more. Baffled by the conflicting advice of experts, I finally sought the newsstands to find out what is really in these controversial publications. My first adventure in shopping for them was attended with some difficulty, for a youngster of about 12 was standing in my way, so lost in rapt examination of the material that I had to squeeze past him in order to get to the rack. When I paid the clerk for the comic books, her face showed not the least trace of surprise. Indeed, there was no reason for surprise, since many of the comic books are designed for men and women, though youth is accented and not chiefly for children of 10 to 14, as I had previously thought in my hopeless ignorance. Cord considered the matter further and asked, what do the assailants of the comic books have to say? He said, they say, by spreading ideas of crime and violence, the comic books are doing incalculable harm to sensitive young minds. These yank mags, as the English are said to call them, are damaging our reputation abroad. With their poor printing and thin content, they are destroying the youngsters' eyesight and preventing them from turning to worthwhile reading. One author, in fact, said further that the American reader's admiration for Batman and Superman, the strong men who solve all problems, could lead eventually to a totalitarian state. Cord then describes the defenders of comics, the defenders, seemingly equally respectable and disinterested, though their antagonists hint darkly that they may be in the pay of the comic book industry, argue that if Johnny's comic book is taken from him, he is likely to find another and more reprehensible outlet for the emotions that had in the comic book a vicarious release. And what if Johnny is reading a comic book version of Ivanhoe or The Jungle Book? Who knows, he may be stimulated to read the works of Sir Walter Scott and Rudyard Kipling. And comic books do keep little folks quiet, the harassed parent approaching the problem from another angle might add. But is the quiet that of an opium-induced state? To use John Mason Brown's vivid phrase, are comic books the marijuana of the nursery? Ooh. Dr. Robert Cord, writing somewhat tongue-in-cheek about the comic book controversy in the 1950s, late 40s, early 50s, he writing in 1955. We might easily imagine that the youngster who, standing in the supermarket, was blocking Cord's way, lost in the pages of a favorite comic book, 
was perhaps a young Patrick or a young Alan, save for the year in question. Patrick Hamilton and Alan Austin were comic book crazy in their young days, and now that they are both professors at Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania, they haven't lost touch with their younger selves. In fact, their first-hand knowledge of the world of comics has not only led them to teach classes together on the subject, but also to co-author a recent study, All New, All Different, A History of Race and the American Superhero. All the richer for their longtime love of the medium that informs this work. We began with a quote from Dwight Burton in 1955 saying, comic books are back in the headlines. And that may be the reason Dr. Austin and Dr. Hamilton had trouble finishing their book, as they tell us. There are always new movies and new superhero developments. Comics have been in the headlines this past week, taking note of the release on August 9th, one week ago today of the August issue of Batman Urban Legends, Ella Kemp writes for NME that the plot line sees Robin fight alongside a character called Bernard Dowd, eventually convincing himself to ask him on a date, a story that made it to national television news. And the kind of development as well that Alan and Patrick provide context for in their new book. Dr. Patrick Hamilton, professor in the Department of English, and Dr. Alan Austin, professor in the Department of History at Misericordia University in Dallas, just outside of Wilkes-Barre, paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about all new, all different, and what they've been exploring. Dr. Austin. When I came to Misericordia about 20 years ago, I came as an immigration historian. So that's my training. My first book was on Japanese-American history during World War II, and I've written about Quakers in history as well. But I grew up as a kid reading comic books. Like, I just, it was something that was just naturally part of the world in which I I grew up in, especially X-Men. I I can remember the first comic book that meant something to me. I still have it, although it's in tatters, of Mm -hmm. course, because I wasn't collecting it. I was, like, reading it over and over and over again. So I had an interest in pop culture, but my training was more traditionally historical. And it was actually meeting Patrick in some ways that inspired me to think about the ways in which my research into race, ethnicity, and American identity is played out in American pop culture all the time. My story's fairly similar. I've been at Misericordia for 15 years, came from a, a traditional literary background, My interest was in post-World War II American, American ethnic literature. My first book was specifically on Chicano literature. But yeah, it it largely started out as just conversations between me and Alan. Our offices are right next door to each other. And like Alan, lifelong comic book fan, I still have the first comic book I bought, which was Avengers. And I still collect Avengers to this day. But yeah, we we started talking about kind of our, our mutual interest in comics. And then I think Alan brought up the Superman comic strip from World War II where he goes to one of the Japanese incarceration camps. And so we started talking about that. And then I mentioned the New Guardian series from 1988. That was kind of an effort from DC at doing multiculturalism. And we started talking and we're like, you know, there's probably a class here. Like, yeah, we could probably get one put together in like a year or two. And I think we had it put together by the end of that semester. And that was was really the beauty of Misericordia is that 
we come from different fields, but we were housed right next to each mm -hmm. other. And so organically out of this conversation about our research interests, but also our personal interests, came this idea for a class. Mm -hmm. We taught the class. Students loved it. You know, selfishly, it was like so much fun. To oh, yeah. That yeah. Class. Among my best teaching experiences is that class. Absolutely. It's just a, a brilliant class. And we got to run and teach it for about a decade. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it must have been in the second or third iteration of teaching the class where I don't even remember which one of us said it to the other, but one of us said, this ought to be a book. Mm -hmm. We're teaching it. There's no textbook for this class. We know yeah. there's a story. So why don't we write it? And then the other one, it was probably me, said, well, yeah, let's do it. Just not st stupidly not thinking about <laughs> what all that meant. And it, the end result was the book. And I think Patrick probably has read all of it. He has an almost encyclopedic grasp of comic book history. It, I, in retrospect, the, the book actually justifies my 30-plus years of comic book collecting because particularly once you get to, like, the 60s, 70s, 80s, particularly the 80s. The vast majority of stuff we talk about is stuff that I own. So yeah, it is, It is. you know, a, a lot of it is stuff that I was just, had, had been reading for years. Uh, it was one of the things I was really pleased with the book was, oh, this, this sort of justifies the money I've spent on comics for the last 30 years. What is that part of it? It's almost like a ritual where you know the time is coming and you want the next installment. It isn't like waiting for a TV series to keep going, or is it? It isn't, it isn't. As a kid, I didn't live close to a comic book shop. So going to, well, there weren't comic book shops when I was a kid. There, was, there were newsstands that, that you would go to. And for my family, it was a big event. Like, I live near Akron, and we would drive into Akron, Ohio, and there was an old Quaker Oats factory that had been repurposed into sort of like a mini mall, and it had both a newsstand and an ice cream shop. And so we'd only go once or twice a year, but when you were going, it was, it was a big deal in the Austin family. And Patrick's heard this story too many times, so <laughs> I'll try to truncate it. But one time we'd had a trip planned, and we were meeting friends there, and I got sick. And I was just five or six years old. And it was, it was almost, it's probably an exaggeration to say it was missing Christmas, but it was close to, to missing Christmas. It was, it was that big a deal in my life. And it was, it was that time my brother brought home a copy of X-Men 95 and handed it to me. And it's why Patrick and I have been at loggerheads ever since, because he's an Avengers guy and I'm an X-Men guy. Right. And so for all that we have in common, we still have a lot of things to argue about. Yeah. Well, and growing up, X-Men was the much bigger of the comics than Avengers. But now, thanks to the films, Avengers has become sort of the, the, the big property. I mean, if you, if you had told 13-year-old me <laughs> that Avengers and, you know, Captain America and Thor and Hawkeye, who's my favorite, were going to be like, dominating film, I would have laughed at you. I'm like, no, nobody cares about the Avengers except me. Everyone loves X-Men. But yeah, it's the same basic stories. You know, my parents, whether it was the thrifty shop when we lived in Eugene, Oregon, or the Fred Meyer when we lived in Beaverton, you know, we would just go there just on our regular shopping trip, and they had the rack, and I would just grab whatever my parents would let me buy if there was a new Avengers issue. And, and then I just remember my mom saying, like, one day when I was, uh, this was in, in junior high, so I was like 13, 14. She's like, did you know that there's a comic book store right by the high school? And I'm like, what's a comic book store? And so, so we went over there, and I had just been, and I remember it very distinctly, we had just been to the Fred Meyer, and I had picked up issue 18 of West Coast Avengers. Issue 19 was already on the shelf at the comic book store because the comic book store got books a month ahead of the newsstand. I was like, it's already out? 
Uh, and so that that was where, you know, I, I would go there every week. I remember particularly in high school, cause it was literally across the street from my high school. I would go there during my lunch break because we could go off campus. And so I would just go there, get my comics or, or just wander around. And for a long time, my mom, if I got straight A's, we would go to the comic book store and I would get back issues. And that was how I filled in my Avengers collection. And then, you know, they took me to the, my, my dad in particular took me to many a comic book convention growing up as a kid. Is that kind of experience with comic books still alive today? What you just described? Not so. I mean, the, the issue is that you don't find comic books on the newsstand at like your, your grocery store and things like that anymore because they're just not cost effective. It's, it's one of the one of the, I don't know if downfall is quite the right word, but one of the issues that the industry faces is that most people are getting their comics from the specialty comic book store, and those are not, as, they're not as prevalent as just your local grocery store. So yeah, that experience of just going to the local grocery store, is like, oh, mom's going to go shop, I'm just going to sit here at the comic book rack and spin through it for the next half hour, and hopefully she'll let me buy one or two. I, I don't know that that experience happens as much anymore. Yeah, I, my answer would have been it is and it isn't in some ways. So I, I often go up to Scranton in Comics on the Green, which is a, a terrific little comic book shop. And you still see families coming through, and there's still that sort of event feel to it. You can see a kid coming in, and it's mm-hmm. kind of like the kid in the candy store, that there's so much to kind of see and take it, and so much more than we had when we were kids, where you mm-hmm. would spin the rack once, and it would like that was it, yeah. and you were done. But there's also, it's a different clientele in some ways, too. When I was reading them as a kid, kids read comic books. And now you increasingly see people of all ages frequenting comic book shops to read. Well, we've just talked about a bit of history, your history. (laughs) But you all did your homework and saw what was out there. When you said there wasn't a textbook for your class, you determined what was out there and what you had to say that hadn't been said, which is a lot. Take us back to what you might have been surprised about in the history that you were writing. So when I, I, I teach a class on modern American history through popular culture, as well as the race and graphic narrative class that Patrick and I have taught, and one of them, the foundational messages I'm trying to teach students is that the culture that surrounds us all the time that we think of as just sort of ephemeral or junk culture, stuff that doesn't matter, actually has profound meaning, that it's communicating cultural ideals and those, those ideals become realities. They shape the way that we think about the world in fundamental ways. And so one of the things that kind of surprised me, because I think of myself as something of a cynic now, like I, I consume all popular media from a fairly critical stance. Students are like, how can you be a happy person doing this? But I, it's, just, it's, it's how I'm kind of trained to think about the world. But I had to go back and reread comic books from the 80s that I was reading as a kid, Teen Titans and X-Men that I now understand were freighted with racial meaning, that they were communicating these fundamental racial beliefs and understandings about how race functions in America that I didn't when I was a kid. And, and so going back and kind of, it was surprising to realize the way in which that kind of reading had shaped me in ways that I wasn't thinking about until after the fact. So as I think about students working through those same issues today, I understand, aha, like this is where you're coming from because I was, I was there too. It's the same thing that we have in the class as well is, is so many of the students that have taken the race and graphic narrative class, for the vast majority of them, they've never read comics or really don't know much about it. And, and one of the things that they very often say coming out of the class is like, I never would have thought comics had this much to say about race and, and this much that it reflects about where we've been, where we are. 
as a culture talking about race. And so that's that's one of the things that I think led us to write the book is is that this is a story that hasn't really been told. And like a lot of pop culture, comics kind of gets thought of, as Alan said, kind of that junk culture. It's just for entertainment. It's just for kids. But there's so much more that it's doing, and, and that's what we tried to show in the book. And there are cases that you bring to us, instances that you bring to us about the progressive nature or the sense that these figures or these stories are enlightened, let's say, or positive expressions, but also there are stereotypes and regressive elements. And it's not one thing or the other, they can coexist. It's like society itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that tension is so important for us to wrestle with as Americans. If you just think about the world in which we live today, it's so clear that whatever we want to imagine about the civil rights movement and what it achieved, and it's not to say that it didn't achieve, but that it, it didn't achieve what Americans sometimes imagine it achieved, which is sort of a, a racial reconciliation that means we're, we're, we're done with it. And I think as, as we entered the book, we didn't want to write a celebration of comics, and we didn't want to write just a, a negative criticism of comics, but we wanted to find in them that kind of ongoing conversation that's loaded with tensions in American history. And so I think the book in some ways where it leaves us in the conclusion is very much where we sit today is that ongoing conversation that, that remains very vexed and conflicted and difficult to sort out. Yeah, that's something that came out, that that vexed nature of, of every decade that we look at in the book. There, there's, there's the stuff that works and the stuff that doesn't work throughout every single period that we look at and kind of showing that tension, that, that contradiction in terms of how Americans think of and, and deal with race. I think the other thing, too, is is I think we initially started out with more of that celebratory kind of stance towards things, particularly as, as the decades went on, because we started this book under the Obama administration. We finished it under the Trump administration, and it was a very different kind of, of place that we were in. And, and in some ways, I think the trajectory of the book shifted a little bit over the the course of those changes. Because writing contemporary history is really challenging. And in fact, I never imagined that I would when I went to grad school. I, I thought of myself as somebody who wrote about the past. And so to find myself writing about Obama and Trump it was, a, it was a challenge, but a really uh, fascinating challenge. Yeah. And then, of course, there was the challenge of writing the coda, because we... We finished the manuscript originally in 2016. The book didn't get published till 2019. And so every time we had to revise the manuscript, like four more Marvel movies had come out. It was like, well, I guess we're revising the coda again. And finally, it was like, look, we've got to stop at some point. Because, yeah, the coda just, it was originally, I think, half the length it was, or it ended up being in the book. And we just, every year, it's like, well, that's not the end point now. We've got to go to this end point. So it was something, you know, dealing with kind of the contemporary nature of the subject was tricky every time we had to, to revise the manuscript. People might not understand how the business works, how writers are acquired, and who gets to do what characters, and how that all comes together, because obviously who's doing all of that is reflective of those themes that mm -hmm. are going to get treated. Can you give us a little sense of how that was, or maybe how it is now? Yeah, it's still something the industry, I think, struggles with is is you, you can see it somewhat in the coda when we talk about how Marvel and DC over the last, maybe getting close to a decade at this point, have multiple times sort of relaunched their universes and done so with an eye towards diversity, not just on the page, but also in terms of bringing in creators. 
And so the industry has still struggled to bring in representation of writers and artists. And, and the further back you go, the less of that of that presence exists. It, it's certainly unintentionally. It, yeah. it's, it's interesting to me. The early comic book business, if you think about it as a business, if it's birthed with Superman in 1938, it was very much an ethnic business in many ways. It was immigrants and it was second generation immigrants um, like Siegel and Schuster who, who create Superman. And so there was a kind of diversity in creation originally. But I think as you move across time and it becomes commodified, it gets lost until more recently, as Patrick says, the, the companies start saying, this is something we ought to pay attention to. That how do we tell these stories without having authentic voices telling the stories? So there is that self-conscious quality. Mm-hmm. Is that something that's characteristic all along? Or is that something that's come with social media and selfies and all the rest? I would, I would answer by saying I think it's, it's been something that's shifted over time that there has been a growing Mm self-consciousness from the beginning to today. Certainly, I don't think when Siegel and Schuster sat down to create Superman, they thought, let's write about explicitly and self-consciously what it means to be second-generation Jewish American. I think that that what was going on really in terms of the meaning of that work was, was a more unconscious kind of working out of immigrant identity and ethnic identity in the American experience. Yeah, I'd, I'd say shifted or, or different kinds of self-consciousness, because certainly the writers and artists in the 60s and 70s, when you started to see superheroes confronting racialized individuals and situations in the 60s, and then you have the explosion of ethnic superheroes in the 1970s, that there was a certain kind of self-consciousness there, and, and they were intentionally bringing sort of these diverse individuals, diverse situations onto the comic page— the Black Panther that is in everyone's mind from the film is very much the Christopher Priest version from the 1990s. Prior to the Christopher Priest version, Black Panther was a sometime member of Avengers. He would pop up whenever they had like a big gathering, but he wasn't regularly appearing. No one really thought about him. Even Christopher Priest, I think we quote from the interview, when they offered it to him, he was like, I don't know that I want to write this guy. Like, He's the one that just shows up and stands in the background to look cool. And so it's really from Priest's Black Panther in the 90s and a a very self-conscious version of the Black Panther, aware of kind of the problems of his past that leads us to the Black Panther we get today. In many ways, I think the superhero genre is, is the perfect place. Superheroes are the perfect figures in which to ground these kinds of conversations. And not just conversations, arguments that Americans have with each other about who we are or who we want to be and how those things don't fit always. Yes. I mean, one of my favorite moments in the Marvel films is in Winter Soldier when Captain America is first shown, you know, the new helicarriers that can basically surveil anyone and police them. And, you know, Nick Fury says something about it protecting freedom and, and Cap replies back, this isn't freedom, this is fear. It's one of the points in the film where, where, which for me is still probably the best written of the MCU films, that it really kind of started to get into some of those issues in terms of thinking about the kind of world that the MCU imagines is built on our world. And so what does it say about our world? But it's also dangerous because we, we look at a moment like that in Captain America Civil War and we think, well, there's a critique. There, there's a real critique of the system. But, I mean, Captain America is ultimately owned by Disney, and Superman's ultimately owned by Warner Brothers. And so 
I think the films ought to be lauded for raising those kinds of questions, but I think ultimately both DC and Marvel, when they've wrestled with those kinds of questions, have been unwilling to take it to the, the next level of critique. They raise the question, but they ultimately, they, they ultimately generally leave us with fairly comfortable solutions. And that's, that's the flip side of the danger. And there, I think you see in the movies, the same kind of tensions we're talking about in the comic books. What about women and race and superheroes as you treat them in, in your book? Yeah, um, it's complicated enough to write about race and superheroes. <laughs> when you throw gender into the mix, it becomes increasingly complicated and, and intersectional in ways that remind us that the book we've written deserves a sequel mm-hmm. in many ways. It would be you know, gender in the American superhero. It remains a story, I think, that as a whole remains to be told. But when we, we look at a figure like Misty Knight from the, the 70s, who kind of embodies what the, the scholar Donald Bogle calls the black superwoman, sort of a foxy brown kind of character, we see the ways in which a white writer might see that as empowering, but that the community might see it as limiting and reductive. Yeah, I, well, I, I, any number of those superwomen from the 1970s. You can just go down the list of them that we talk about. They all fall into very tried-and-true stereotypes. Mantis from the Avengers being another one that falls into any number of really problematic stereotypes about Asian women. But then sort of jumping forward to someone like the the Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel. But I think as we talk about in the book, one of the places where Marvel and DC have both found success in talking about race has been via sort of what we call the Peter Parker trope in that you have kind of of these young teenage characters going through kind of a lot of the same experiences that Peter Parker went through, but they do it with Kamala Khan, who's Pakistani. They do it with Blue Beetle, who's Latino, and, and it kind of, of humanizes them in a way. And, and so Kamala Khan is, is the standard example that I go to in terms of something very recent, but also something that, that Marvel seemed to get very right, and that was very and that was and remains very successful. She's probably one of the few characters introduced in the last 10 years that's actually proven to to be popular with with fans. I mean one of the things that you find in the comic industry is it's very hard to launch brand new characters and have them last. Kamala Khan is someone who's been launched within the the 21st century that's found a lot of success. She's she's now going to be in the next Captain Marvel movie. She's got her own Disney Plus series coming. She's in the Avengers video game. Like that's something that you you don't see as often. And, and so that, a real triumph particularly in terms of both race and gender. And that I think it's especially remarkable because one of the new characters that emerged in kind of the late 80s early 90s would have been in the X-Men series and it was Psylocke. And Psylocke was a white woman who is transformed but into a Japanese woman. And as she undergoes the transformation from white to Japanese, she becomes a much more lethal fighter. And she also is increasingly framed by her sexuality. The white woman was a woman that was fairly innocent. The, the Asian woman is like a much more worldly yeah. fighter, but again, always kind of framed by her sexuality. And so the idea that, that Kamala Khan is not that far removed from Psylocke might suggest that there is at least a glimmer of hope that we could do better. You suggest that the discussion of the superhero can be a place where we can maybe come together to launch a conversation in a way that might make a real difference. And so overall, since you had to put the period somewhere, (laughs) um, what are you saying today? Yeah, so 
I'd like to go back and say thank you. You started by saying that the book was really readable and accessible. Mm -hmm. And to, to us, that was one of the fundamental goals. We didn't want to yeah. write just another academic book. We wanted a book that academics would respect, but that the public would, mm -hmm. would want to read. Mm -hmm. And so in answering that question, I think my hope for a book like this is that it will encourage people to, number one, think more critically about the world in which they live, to think about the way in which racial attitudes are encoded all around us. And if we think about them, then we can start tearing them apart and, and building something better. But that comes to the second thing that, that really hooked me in your question, and that's the idea of a conversation. We're not particularly good at that in the United States right now. We do more hollering at each other than we do talking with each other. My hope is we kind of put that period in the book is that the book isn't the end point. As I tell my, my students all the time, whatever I've written 50 years from now, people are gonna be like, well, he was asking the wrong question. He was going the wrong direction. That's okay, like, I, I can live with that. But what I would like the book to do is inspire really serious, thoughtful conversations about race in American history and how that informs where we are today. Because if we wanna do better, we can't do that if we don't have a community of people having honest conversations about what works and what doesn't work in American society. Dr. Alan Austin, professor in the Department of History, and Dr. Patrick Hamilton, professor in the Department of English at Misericordia University in Dallas, just outside Wilkes-Barre. Sometimes they teach together and they've written together. They've co-authored a recent study titled All New, All Different, a History of Race and the American Superhero, issued by the University of Texas Press. That's all new, all different, question mark. A History of Race and the American Superhero, issued by the University of Texas Press. Now, you may be interested if you picked up on the fact that they have a wonderful rapport, you might want to check their podcast. It's titled Even More Mashed Up, it's a podcast taking on and talking with each other as they do about all matters pop culture. And they keep going and keep posting and they talk about just about everything. So it is even more Mashed Up, a podcast. And you can find it mashed up, one word, dot podbean, B E A N, dot com. Mashed up dot podbean, B E A N, dot com. Dr. Patrick Hamilton, Dr. Alan Austin, A-L-L-A-N-A-U-S-T-I-N, All New, All Different, A History of Race and the American Superhero, issued by the University of Texas Press. Misericordia.edu, misericordia.edu. Misericordia